Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. One of the most remarkable business innovations of recent times is the whole concept of microlending, an idea most famously practiced in Bangladesh by companies such as the Grameen Microlending Bank, where loans of from a few dollars to a few hundred dollars are helping microbusinesses of all kinds to start and flourish. As just one example of how this has worked in the past, the Indian organization SHARE targets rural women whose per capita income is less than $8 a month, a staggering number to us in developed countries, and well under the $30 a month the World Bank has designated as the poverty line. It loans money to groups of eight women to provide support and, yes, a bit of peer pressure as well, and has had an incredible success rate. Of SHARE's approximately 200,000 clients, since the program started, an estimated 77% of the people involved with the program have experienced a significant decline in poverty in the first four years of the program, and 38% are no longer considered poor. Defaults on the loans do happen, but with these kinds of numbers, they aren't that common. Once such a system is in place, the power of this to transform an entire human ecosystem is certainly clear as the money flow helps feed everyone, supports better health practices in all ways, and allows for reinvestment of the income in other businesses as the return continues to roll in for all parties involved. But to get it started takes will and a special kind of courage. And it is that story that we wanted to explore in Stranova today. To tell that story, we have the great honor to talk with journalist Betsy Brill, who has traveled throughout the world and is, with a few others, in the process of launching a brand new microlending venture in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, deep in the heart of Africa. She runs her own business, Creative Connections, focused on marketing and other communications for companies such as Apple, Levi's, Kaiser Hospital, Hewlett Packard, and Amgen, among others, and also has supported organizations such as Women in Communications, the National Association of Credit Unions, and San Francisco State University as clients. She was also a runner-up for the Penn West Literary Award for Nonfiction, as well as a Pulitzer Prize nominee for her five-part front-page series for the San Francisco Examiner on approaches to microfinance in Egypt, India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, and four U.S. cities. We talked with Ms. Brill at her home in France. Betsy, welcome to Stranova. Thank you, Brad. It's just great to have this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, Betsy, as a starting point, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an overview of some of the programs that you are just beginning to launch in the Congo involving microcredits and the launching of new businesses. I am just getting going with these projects in the Congo. They're not my microcredit projects. I'm acting more as a, oh, a, a liaison or a catalyst. I am trying to connect different women in these different groups with organizations that already are involved with microcredit in the Congo. 
my involvement has come through a long-time friendship with a woman who grew up in the Congo. Her grandparents were missionaries at the turn of the century, and her father was born in this little village called Latumbe. My friend's name is Lucy Hobgood Brown. And her stories of growing up there had always fascinated me. She went back with her father in 2004, at the end of the year, on what he called his final trip home because he's now in his late 70s, and he wasn't so sure he'd be able to make that trip. And now having made it, I can tell you it's a hard one. But the, the stories she told me were just so interesting and, and devastating, because there had been so many terrible things that have happened there in the intervening years since she was a child. And she spent part of her uh, early childhood in this village where he grew up. And then she grew up in other areas of the Congo, too, and in fact graduated from high school there. So she started talking about the devastation that existed and how there was, had been no progress. In fact, everything had gone backwards. We've had Mobutu, who was the dictator there and who bled so much of the wealth out of the country. But then in the late 90s came different military coups and the militias coming in and then war that came and swept through this area and just destroyed so much. And she decided that she wanted to do something about that, and, or at least to try to help in some small way. And as we talked, I realized that, you know, I wanted to help. And I had some skills or some knowledge. I don't know that I had the skills, but I had knowledge that could help in what she was trying to do. In part, one of the things that really is so devastating is the lack of any kind of way to build financial capabilities there. It's it's cut off, the, the transportation is poor, and it's just hard to get things in. What made us realize that we could have an impact is this long family history that she has. Her father was born in this village of Latumbe and has maintained these relations all these years, and there are actually older people there that she knew when she was a child. And they're all part of a infrastructure of the church that they happen to belong to. And so there's actually an existing network that has been tested and tried, and it is an honest network. That's one of the great fears people have about getting involved with some of these projects in Africa, and particularly in Congo, where corruption has become such a problem. So through their family history, they've known that they can send material to these different stations and these different villages, and that the money gets there and it's used for the projects where it's intended. So that's one thing. The other thing is that her father helped to found a university in Kinshasa. It's called L'Université Protestant du Congo, Protestant University of the Congo. And it was created initially as a theology school for Protestant denominations, not one, but you know, in many of them. And in time, what's happened is that it has developed a business school and a law school that it now has 5,379 students, I think, only 300 of whom are studying theology. The rest are in business and law, and they're launching a medical school that will start with a preliminary year next fall, actually. So that's another place where that long family history exists, and her father, in fact, today runs a small nonprofit that does fundraising for scholarships and for helping to raise money for this medical school. And that's audited by Price Waterhouse Coopers. It's, it's something that we know and that we know that we can go in if we want to target money to some place that we can 
get it there and that it's going to be accounted for. It'll actually get to the right people, unlike, as you pointed out, there's enough corruption everywhere in a number of the countries down there. That's right. She and I have collaborated for years on different projects. We've worked together through an organization called Women in Communications when it was active uh, back in the mid-80s through the mid-90s in San Francisco. And we developed many interesting programs. And then she moved to Asia, and I went to the women's conference in Beijing with her and stayed with her, and we worked together to mobilize a huge effort with the international community in Beijing, the women in the international community, to help support the work of UNIFEM there so that people were acting as volunteers and we coordinated a big event and, and everything at the women's conference. So we've really stayed in touch and have continued to work on in these capacities before, and we've always had this urge to do something, <laughs> but we've been busy having our careers. She was doing international public relations and went on to teach international public relations in Sydney, where she now lives. And I've been working as a journalist and then as uh, working in marketing and working on these textbooks. So we're busy doing these other things where our hearts truly lay in what we could do for women's development. And so when we started picking this, all of this apart and trying to figure out what, what we could do with our skills, what could we bring to the table, we realized that you know there, there really were things that we could do. And part of my track as a journalist had been in 1997 and 1998 to travel with my husband, who's a photojournalism professor and a photojournalist, to four developing countries where we looked at different approaches to microcredit. I'd always been interested by this from the first time I ever saw it on 60 Minutes when they went to see the Grameen Bank. I think many, many people saw that program and it truly struck a chord with us that, well, of course, you know, it takes money to make money. And that if you can't get access to credit, however, can, how can you ever move yourself out of poverty? We actually went to see the Grameen Bank, but we also saw a program in India where women created a cooperative and made their own bank called the Self-Employed Women's Association. That's been very successful. It's a different approach to microcredit. And we saw a program in Egypt, in Cairo, where USAID actually went in and guaranteed the loans of the poor to convince the National Bank for Development there to put in a, a, an arm dealing with microcredit. And that's been incredibly successful. They never had to call on that guarantee. And we also looked at programs in Indonesia. And there's a, Indonesia is a hotbed of microcredit. It has been for a long time. All of them have different structures. They're not all are like, and they don't all have to be, but we were looking at the success stories, and they had many things in common, and the thing they have in common is that women are the most successful borrowers. Successful meaning they pay back their loans, successful meaning they actually build those little businesses, and successful meaning that they take the profits from their little businesses and they reinvest them in their families. So in many of the cultures, even the women are the last to eat. The father will eat first, the sons will eat next, and then the daughters will eat next, the mothers will eat last. If you look at it from a purely selfish point of view, they have a great interest in succeeding and seeing that that money comes back. But in fact, it's, I think it's just that motherly instinct and that, that need for women to know that they can have better lives for their children, and it's working. So that has been very important in my own 
philosophy in trying to figure out how we could make an impact would be to find a way to create a way to make money. With that in mind, how far along is the program and what are your goals for what you're hoping to do? We are acting as liaisons and we're weighing whether or not we want to actually have something ourselves rather than act in this role. For example, we have raised funds, but we've targeted that money into the university, and we're targeting the money through the university into this fund in Latumbe for the women. And it strictly has been through reaching out to our own personal and professional networks that we've done this. So we're not talking a lot of money. We're talking little money. But what we've accomplished with this little money, it's so remarkable. Last June, I went with Lucy to Congo for the first time. This was almost a year ago now. She was going back for the high school reunion of the American School of Kinshasa. And she saw this as an opportunity to go and network with people that she had grown up with there. This was the first time they'd ever been able to come back to Congo for a reunion. And also we would go to see the university and find out ways that we could work with them. And she wanted to send back some sewing machines to Latumbe because she had met with some women there when she had been there the previous January. And her initial idea was to just send them some sewing machines. And what I brought to the table was, let's not just send the sewing machines. Let's have them do something with those sewing machines. It turns out the hospital had needed surgical garb and uniforms for the doctors and nurses. And one of the things she was originally thinking of was bringing that stuff to Congo. Well, one of the things that it impacted me during the tsunami was the fact that people were sending all this worthless stuff to Indonesia, and, and all the money was going into shipping it. And really what they needed was money. There's plenty of opportunity in that area to spend that money to have people make the things that they need. And that, in turn, helps to rebuild the economy. That's actually a good message in general, that when I think about the whole system that you're trying to address, it is in part that money allows the whole system, the economic system, to flow again. And if you're simply shipping goods over, not only is it not necessarily what's needed, you've also brought up an important point that I rarely hear talked about all that much, is that you're spending a lot of money just getting it there, when all that money could go to good use if it went directly. Well, that's what I felt. And then when I got there, I was shocked to find out that Congo is the most expensive port in the world. Getting anything transported in that country at this stage is so difficult and so expensive that we really are trying to find out ways that we can have that money go in without having to send containers of things in. And, in fact, you can buy the sewing machines in Kinshasa. You can buy fabric in Kinshasa. Most of it has already been shipped in somewhere, you know, from somewhere else because they don't do much manufacturing right now. On the other hand, there's some local business that's benefiting because we're spending money there. And we also aren't having to go through all of the, the hassle that it takes to put together a container and get it out and get it through customs and try to get it to where it needs to go without it being pilfered somewhere along the line. So I sent out a letter to all of my pals last year before we got ready to go, and my Listo buddies, and I told them what I was up to, and I said, you know, how about sending me a big face 20 to uh, spend in the Congo for, for, 
to, I'd like to be a personal shopper for the poor women in the Congo. <laughs> and I'm talking about a $20 bill, right? And so people did, and they sent me more than 20 So I left with a couple of thousand dollars, which I had to carry in cash to spend because they don't, there was no banking available then. And so we got over there, and we wound up buying just a couple of sewing machines, and I bought some equipment for the hospital and also gave some money for another microcredit program with my particular money. But the main thing, I want to go back to the story about the, the sewing machines, because we bought our sewing machines, we bought the fabric, and we bought all the supplies and everything they would need, you know, scissors and thread and all of that. And we then arranged to have it go back to Latumbe, which had to, the stuff flew to Latumbe eventually. And then Chantal is the doctor's wife there, and she actually had come into Kinshasa to see family. And she and I shopped the machines and the fabric and picked it all out and everything. And she got on a boat. It took a week to get from the place where they where you fly into. It took one week by paddling a canoe, not her, but four men paddling a canoe to get those sewing machines up to Latumbe. And we're talking manual sewing machines. We're not, they don't have electricity there, so we have little manual sewing machines. And the deal was, here, you know, you and, and this other woman can take these sewing machines but make what the hospital needs, and your responsibility in exchange for the sewing machines will be to supply the hospital. And those were basically the only kinds of criteria we put on it. That's how sophisticated we were. While I was in Kinshasa, and Chantal and I went shopping, I also was slated to give a talk about microcredit at the university. And I have a, a talk that I give with using Ken's photographs. And so I simplified that a great deal because I had to give it in French, and that wasn't very easy. But Chantal came to that meeting where I gave that talk. And she was so energized by this whole idea because what I did was I single, you know, I showed women in India and I showed women in Egypt and I showed women in Indonesia and I showed women in Bangladesh. And, of course, these were very, very poor women who were doing these amazing things with their little, these little amounts of money. They'd take their money and they'd reinvest it and then they would be able to do another thing and then they would grow their businesses. You know, they could go from buying a cow to having a calf to selling milk and then having another calf to sell and then they could buy a little piece of land and there were many dramatic stories and I, obviously this really captured her imagination because she went back and with her friend Antoinette they started a little sewing school and Antoinette they, they made the they made the uniforms for the hospital and sent us pictures uh, several months ago I don't know how they finally got those they took pictures and then they had to go back up river again <laughs> made into prints, and then someone scanned it for them. We eventually got pictures by email of the uniforms in use. And so, when, But when we went, of course, we wanted to see all of this. And when we, we got there, we found out they'd made a sewing school. And at the sewing school, they, they made little baby outfits for newborn babies as part of their practice using the fabric remnants. And then they were giving these little newborn kits, little shirts and little blankets, to mothers who give birth at the hospital, which is, is, is in the village. And it's the regional hospital. So women would, would come in there from, from various villages. And the knowledge of these little free outfits and mosquito nets that they're using because they're buying mosquito nets with their profits are drawing women who otherwise wouldn't be coming into the hospital to have their babies. 
Now, it's not a great hospital because it's been pillaged and it's just they're barely operating, but it's a wonderful public health opportunity because they give out these mosquito nets. Malaria is a big problem. And they also have an opportunity to discuss hygiene and sanitation and, and nutrition with the mothers with their new babies. So they've taken that little sewing school and they've started with that. And people are coming in because they've heard about this of them having these sewing machines there, and they're paying whatever they can, little amounts, to have things repaired or to have things made. So they're actually generating some money, and that's how they were able to buy those mosquito nets. And then they had enough money, as this was going on and word was spreading, that they are paying a woman to come in and work at the hospital, do the laundry and, and things like that. And then they still had a little money, so they started what they call a little cafeteria, outside the hospital where they make coffee and they bake little loaves of bread over charcoal in a pot. And they slice that up and they sell that for a little bit early in the mornings or through the day uh, outside the hospital. And that's generating a little money. And they actually now can pay two women to come in at different times to work there. And they're learning how to make a business. And then they bought a set of tools and some seeds with their little profits. And they started a community experimental garden. And you can see the influence of the doctor husband here because it's a nutritional garden, it's a nutrition-rich garden. The, the village typically is dependent on fish for the diet, which you think is fine. Of course it is. It, they, there was no variety with uh, vegetables and other kinds of nu nutrients and vitamins. So they're growing spinach, and there's some other fast-growing vegetable that I did not ever get the name of. That a green vegetable that can be harvested in three weeks. They plant it and it can be harvested very quickly. And that's very rich in uh, iron and nutrients. And so it's, it's rebalancing the local diet. So they were just incredibly creative in all the things that they were able to do with this money. And they didn't use it for themselves. They put it back into their own community, which was just astonishing. I mean, it was just so exciting. Let me just ask two questions that come to mind based on what you have just gone over. And one of them has to do with the whole idea of running businesses, period, because it's certainly tough for a lot of people, even in the so-called developed countries, to understand how to do this right. And here we have people that not only are successful on their first try, it seems, they also have a lot of entrepreneurial creativity to be able to plow it back into the business, to figure out how to start even other businesses because of the availability of some of the money that they make and the profits they make. Did they get guidance on these sort of things? Or are you finding this is something that is almost natural in terms of the way that this particular group is able to go about growing their business environment? Well, I can only speak to these particular women. And honestly, I, I, I'm astonished by it. And I don't know you know, how much profit they're making, but they're obviously, it's enough that they can keep turning it up. They're not paying themselves. So that's part of it. They need to find out a way that they can, can pay themselves out of this. A lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of not doing that anyway here in the U.S., so it's, it's a real good bit of advice for them. That's true. One of the things that we hope can happen eventually is that we can get training before them. And we talked before about be trying to act as a liaison for this, for these different people and these different organizations. 
I am in the process of trying to help provide information to write a grant to a microcredit organization called WORTH. It was founded in Nepal, and it starts with literacy training. Now, these women are literate. That's not a problem. But, but it starts with literacy training and then business training and then building businesses. So there's different components to it. In addition to teaching them how to make their own banks, there's not outside funding provided for the businesses. They all come together and contribute a certain amount of money and set up a little system where they then borrow from the fund and then repay the fund and grow it. So it's a very interesting model. And I'm trying to get a grant written to link up these different church groups that I was telling you about, this organization, but they're all within this structure out in Ecuador province, and hoping that we can train women and then Antoinette and Chantal would be two of the teachers who would learn about this process. They also will be learning to help themselves and what they're doing with their organization here. As you step back from this a bit, and you've given some examples so far, I'm wondering about your philosophy of the role of these programs and how they're going to transform the whole system of life in the country. I mean, after all, this is a country that has incredible natural wealth in the raw materials, everything from diamond, uranium, copper, all kinds of things like that, as well as, as you pointed out, an educated people that really have the power to do a lot of change for themselves. And yet, the opportunity hasn't been there for any number of reasons, and you've also hinted at those. How do you see what these kind of programs could actually do for the Congo, both in the short term and the long term? Well, in the short term and the long term, the more that you can empower people at the bottom of the economic ladder to start climbing up, that's going to make a difference in individual lives. And I believe that as an individual, myself, and speaking for Lucy too, for us, you can look at Africa and you can look at the Congo and you can look at the Ecuador region and you can think, you can't do anything. It's just too big a mess. But when you go down to this village level, and you go down to these individuals, and you find these individuals who are strong and creative and innovative themselves, and find ways to, to give them the tools that they need, then you can start making a difference on that level. I'm in the process of reading The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs. And there are huge institutional things that need to take place, too, international interventions that need to take place. And he would argue for the equivalent of the Marshall Plan to come into Africa and give Africa what it needs with guidance and accountability to rebuild the infrastructures. Because I spoke to you just a little bit about the cost of simply that port. Bringing anything in and out is extravagantly expensive, and that, of course, affects trade. So there's things that, that are beyond our reach as, as individuals unless we can communicate with our own government to come up with better strategies of, of, of empowering these countries. Sachs is really on to something when you look at the, what happened after World War II when we basically rebuilt Europe and didn't ask anything in return. And we've had, in the terms of economic success, you know, wonderful trading partners ever since. And if we could come in and do the same thing in Africa, we would have you know, a healthier world from economics to the end of poverty, as he says it. So I would hope that, you know, with these elections and with all the attention that's on Africa right now, 
that you know we will see changes occurring and that we can be at least from the bottom up we can be part of that well that actually leads into a next question a lot of the listeners and there are listeners literally from all over the world and you might be interested to know that we actually have a sizable listenership in a number of countries in Africa to this program, believe it or not, on a regular basis. But one of the things that a lot of people may not know is that this election that is coming up that Betsy has just referred to is the first one, and I believe it's 45 years that has happened, and it's a massive electoral operation. It's going to happen on July 30th, and... I don't know all the positions that are involved, but I believe, actually, I was just looking at my notes here, it says 33 candidates on the presidential ballot. There are candidates from 213 parties going for 500 seats in the National Assembly, and it's estimated the United Nations is going to be spending as much as $430 million just to find a way to have the election go as smoothly as possible in a country which is not known for its smooth processes of these kinds. I'm wondering what you are hoping for that may come out of this, since you're a little bit closer, both for the Congo as a whole, as well as how it might help support some of the things that you're trying to help make happen. There's a lot of mixed feelings about this election, and I'm certainly no expert in the politics of the Congo, but there's also a lot of hope. The fear is that Yes, they'll pull the elections off, but then the uh, factions who don't win are going to come in and cause problems. So there's fears that another dictator will appear as a result of it. But then there's also hopes because now they're having local elections where people were being elected rather than appointed. So that should centralize some of that power. And I think that people want the democracy. The logistics are phenomenal. If you look at just a place like Latumbe, where there's no electricity, there's no communication, and it takes seven days by, with a paddled canoe to get from Mbandaka, the capital of Ecuador province, to this town, this village, the challenges are formidable. Now, it turns out that I did speak extensively with someone at the UN who is working with all of us very closely. He claims that, and this was all, you know, not for publication or anything, but he claims that they really have a handle on the logistics and that that is going to go well, that no one's going to be able to complain about how the election is handled. And I just read today that Germany has agreed to deploy additional troops to the UN to monitor the elections. So I can only add my own hope to that of all those very hopeful Congolese that they actually will have some say in, in what happens in their country from now on. Even this conversation suggests one other area that I would be interested in your response to, and that has to do with that one of the ideas that many of us in the so-called developed countries need to be conscious of is about the assumptions we make about the right way to run a government, run an economy, help a developing culture. And I'm sure you've made some discoveries, some surprises along the way about what might be important for those of us listening all over the world to pay close attention to as we think about trying to make transformation in these cultures. You've indicated as an example that you know, sending goods may not be the best way to resolve things, but there's also deeper issues than that, such as even the whole philosophy of 
how, for example, the Congo ought to evolve. Do you have any kind of surprises or learnings that you'd like to pass on? I'm not sure that I have such profound understanding. I think that one of the things I've come to learn is that the reason why a lot of aid to Africa has been squandered is because the giving countries don't require accountability. They don't send Lucy and me to go and look at the sewing machines, <laughs> if I can bring it down to the most personal level. Uh, I heard stories of things that, that have been sent there and then been diverted for other purposes. And the, the, the giving countries don't go in and have a look at it. You know, they, they send the money for whatever, but then they don't go and check on it. Or if they then they send the they insist that what they need are computers when in fact there's no electricity in a town. So I've seen things from inappropriate give, giving to irresponsible giving. And I think one of the things that I learned from one of the organizations I met is how important it is to start at the local level to determine what a community needs. And one one organization I learned about that's called IFESH. They actually go into a community and talk with different groups, men, women, different age levels, and get them to identify the different needs in the community. And then they have to come back and hash out which are the most important needs. And they all work through these things on consensus. And then the aid comes in after people have bought into what it is that they want to see change in their community. And they themselves set up a system of accountability and who's going to do what and who's going to maintain it and how it's all going to work. So I think that you know that's that's something that I saw that uh, I can imagine being very useful in terms of people who, or people and or organizations who want to do something is to start with the people who are aiming to help instead of deciding what they need to let them identify it so that they'll have some ownership of it when it comes time to to implement it and see it through. It's probably good advice in everything we're doing, everything from the way that the government intervenes as well as to our own personal life. Sometimes listening is the good first step. Well, let me ask one other question here before we close then, and that you are certainly still in the launching phase of a lot of this. I'm wondering if you have suggestions on how our listeners could either learn more about what you're involved with and or how to perhaps help with some of the things that you're trying to make happen in the Congo. They're welcome to write to me at BetsyB123 at Mac.com. And that's B-E-T-S-Y-B-123 at Mac.com. Well, Betsy, I really appreciate your time with us on the show today, and thank you for joining us on Stranova. Well, it's just been so exciting to get to talk about it again. Thank you. For those of us who don't follow the news of the Democratic Republic of the Congo that carefully, and sadly that includes many of us, Ms. Brill's courageous venture is just one of many amazing transformations that are currently taking hold there. The Democratic Republic of the Congo is a complex country with access to immense natural wealth of diamonds, copper, and zinc, agricultural bounties of coffee, sugar, palm oil, rubber, tea, quinine, tapioca, palm oil, bananas, root crops, and corn. And yet for three decades, from the mid-1960s to the mid-1990s, it was led by the notorious and hellish Mobutu regime, and then was ravaged with internal war until just a few years ago 
when many countries helped to stabilize this highly challenging environment. And although the per capita income there is estimated by a U.S. government organization at over $700 U.S., much of that never reaches the hands of the ordinary people. Well, this summer, in a country that has seen so much turmoil, on July 30th, the first democratic elections will be held in over 45 years and will be for the president and parliament. Over $400 million is being spent in various forms by the UN to ensure it proceeds as peacefully and democratically as possible. Soon after that, it is hoped the country's new leadership will take the first very important baby steps to lead this country into a more peaceful and shared future. And while all this is happening at the top of everything in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at the literal grassroots will be the other kind of beginnings, as Betsy Brill's own business innovation of microcredit lending begins to take hold through a new type of entrepreneurial woman leader within the country. Many business conglomerates of sowing cloth and sowing seeds will begin to spread, the microloans will be paid off with interest, and new money will come out yet again to get others involved. And slowly, from both the top and the bottom, a brilliant new and lasting dawn may just be rising over the Lualaba River valleys deep in Africa. Thanks to some incredible innovation and determination from people such as our guest, Betsy Brill. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com. And be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at stranova.com or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408-849-4394 or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson, thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.